1: Last week on fill in the blanks. Anybody that's been to San Francisco in years past have always thought it was one of the most beautiful cities in the world, one of the most picturesque cities in the world sitting on the bay there. What has happened and why is it so tarnished?
0: San Francisco, it's a very progressive city. It's a city that loves freedom. It's very libertine, libertarian. It's also very compassionate. It's named after St. Francis, of course. And the combination of those two things, those two strengths in excess leads to pathology. So what's occurred is the coddling of People that are struggling with drug addiction, where they need tough love, they're basically being enabled in their addiction. The city is extremely, it's overly generous in the sense of basically providing cash, housing, and many other services to people without any requirement that they address the underlying cause of their homelessness. We've seen a threefold higher overdose rate in San Francisco from drugs, threefold higher than in the United States as a whole or in California. And that's all a consequence of the refusal of San Francisco's leaders to require people to take responsibility for their behaviors, including not defecating in public, not using drugs in public, not camping in public. And many basic laws are, are have stopped being enforced.
1: Go back to psychology one oh one. One of the things that we know is you just don't reward bad behavior.
0: People can be pathological in their desire to care, their desire to care so much that they actually end up hurting people either in order to care or to be able to keep caring. And so I think that there's some self-indulgence here in addition to the guilt, which is, I think San Franciscans, we feel, you know, it's a very wealthy city, it's a very liberal city, it's powerful people. They had a very good record during the AIDS epidemic in the 80s in particular, of welcoming people with HIV AIDS from around the country into San Francisco and treating them. And it was an incredibly positive contribution. And I think that that, when that bled into then taking care of addicts, what got missed or what was run over in this desire to care was the fact that enabling addiction Worsens the addiction. It actually makes people sicker than they would be otherwise.
1: I look at what's happening in what you're describing in San Francisco and what I see in a lot of these progressive cities. And it seems like we're subsidizing drug addiction.
0: We're subsidizing addiction when we should be subsidizing recovery from addiction and recovery from mental illness.
1: Addiction, in my view, is a serious disease. It is resistant to treatment, it is subject to relapse, and it is potentially fatal. So there is no safe use of these drugs. What I don't understand is how they are in a different category of being oppressed and therefore are held to a lesser standard.
0: The fact is that people that are suffering from drug addiction do tend to have higher rates of childhood trauma and abuse. There's comorbidities, including dual diagnosis with mental illness. But that doesn't then say that you should not require people to take responsibility, or that you should enable those, those disorders from continuing but it does come from a pretty rigid view that you can categorize people into victims or oppressors and to victims everything should be given and nothing required.
1: That's why you go to treatment, particularly dual diagnosis treatment. You deal with both simultaneously, you deal with the addiction and you deal with the psychological triggers that are likely to restart the addiction When you get back out, you really have a population that needs help and treatment, not enablement. It just drives me crazy when I hear about it. What is the rule of law in San Francisco with regard to living on the streets now? And are they clearing some of these areas? Are they doing what they refer to as sweeps? And what happens to them if they're moved?
0: San Francisco has passed uh, twice a camping ban, a sit-lie ordinance that says you can't lie down on the sidewalks. So the laws are on the books, and just as they are in most cities, that you can't do those things. So it's been a matter of electing very progressive members of the city, the County Board of Supervisors, the City Board of Supervisors, and very progressive district attorneys who won't enforce the laws. The other strategy that the radical progressives have used is to, deprive, is to basically divert funding that would have gone into building basic, safe, and clean shelters into very expensive apartment units. And the reason, ostensibly, is because they think that shelter is just not good enough for people and that everybody that is homeless deserves their own apartment unit in, by the way, one of the most expensive real estate markets in the world. Well, and then and then so then they're in a situation where they can say, well, there's no shelter space. We now have a Supreme Court has upheld a ruling out of Boise, Idaho, which says that you can't arrest people or move people from camping publicly if you don't have sufficient shelter space. So that's been a real key strategy to basically encouraging the chaos to increase and the public camping to increase on the streets by the radical left in San Francisco and other cities. You know, I would say too, Dr. Phil, I mean, it's important to keep in mind that if you're sleeping on the sidewalks, you're living on the sidewalks, you're using drugs, you're you're actually breaking several laws. And so if you have sufficient shelter capacity, which, by the way, can be constructed basically instantaneously, you know, we live in an earthquake zone. And so California, if we had a big earthquake and there were millions of people on the street, we would be able to get people sheltered within hours. So the fact that we don't have those shelters shows that the politicians are actively preventing sufficient shelters from being built. Because once you have sufficient shelters, then you can require people to go into them. They don't have to go. By the way, I always point this out. You don't have to go into the shelter if you don't want to go into the shelter, but you can't sleep on the street. And if you need somewhere to sleep, then you can go sleep in the shelter. That's the rule in places like the Netherlands and Japan and France and civilized societies. And if you are refusing to do that, then there's something wrong. I mean, you're either suffering from addiction or mental illness. If you're you're just insisting on sleeping on the sidewalk in the middle of downtown of a city, you've got a problem. And so, yeah, you'll be arrested, but really you'll be mandated some sort of treatment. So that's how people would, would get treatment, is that you would just enforce the laws that we're currently refusing to enforce.
1: Right now, if you were controlling this, What would you do? What would be your first step?
0: The first thing I would do if I were, say, governor of the state, since I do think it is best dealt with at a state level precisely for the reason you said, which is that if you're an addict on the street in San Francisco, you probably should not be going to rehab in San Francisco. You're probably better off in a smaller town in uh, the countryside somewhere for three to six months, and then on some sort of work rehabilitation program and maybe never go back to San Francisco, as you said, or at least not until you've really achieved full recovery. So a statewide system is what you need. And by the way, you know, Boston's mayor has been moving their homeless addict population into shelters, into housing, and not just in Boston, but in other parts of the state. So this has worked in other states. I would immediately put in place a statewide psychiatric and addiction care system we could call it CalPsych that would allow us allow social workers to get people into drug rehabilitation or psychiatric care immediately within a few hours particularly after people overdose is a great time for them to get into that care and then I would have a shelter first housing earned policy so that you have sufficient shelter Again, people don't have to go in there, but they can't sleep on the street. So you have a shelter, a clean, safe, uh, basic shelter bed for everybody. And then you, the small amount of subsidized housing that those taxpayers are generously funding would be reserved for people who pass a drug test, who show that they're taking their psychiatric meds and are making progress on their personal plan to recovery. Those are precious Homeless housing units, they should not be given out to people who are not making steps. They should not be used as a reward for bad behavior. They should only be used as a reward for good behavior. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television.
1: And when you say you can do shelters for a lot of people in a short period of time, these are shelters that can be set up in huge environmentally controlled tents, You can do these in areas that are low demand for the real estate. You know, they're not in downtown San Francisco. You can go to outlying areas and you can provide shelters for thousands of people. What's the population of San Francisco now? What, 875, something like that, 875,000? Yeah. But you can go out to some outlying areas where you can provide clean, quality monitored shelters for people
0: that's right and and yeah these are obviously we have this amazing agency called FEMA yeah you know, it's always complicated so you often hear of stories of problems with it but it's it's you know when a hurricane strikes it's able to provide what are called sprung shelters and you know safe clean place to stay I think that with this population it's such a difficult a population it's a it's a you know long late stage drug addicted mentally ill population you you want to try to get as many people into rehab right away if you can skip the shelter phase of things that's great i mean the low hanging fruit i think is somebody overdoses on the street they get revived by an emt and the emt can pull up her smartphone and say i've got an opening in san bernardino or eureka or or somewhere Long way from here, we can get you on a Suboxone taper, which means we can get you on opioid replacement therapy so that you don't uh, go into really painful withdrawals over several days. Or if you don't want to do that, my colleague Officer Garcia here will arrest you and you'll be brought to county jail and you can kick in jail and they may or may not have a Suboxone taper for you. Which would you rather do? It's time to make a choice that's the ideal time to make the intervention. And those folks then can go right into rehab. They don't need to go into shelters. They don't need to go into jail. So I think it would be done. I think you know what you don't want is to overwhelm the system. So I would be looking to do, I would be looking to get everybody in California that's unsheltered homeless inside within a few years. I would say one to three years, you could do it in a very humane way in a way that I think most reasonable people that are concerned with civil liberties would agree was done in a humane way.
1: Yeah, The alternative is in that one to three years, they're going to be right where they are right now, or dead.
0: That's right. I mean, that's what's happening now. I mean, you know, it was 17,000 drug overdose deaths in the year 2000, this year. That's three times more people dying of drug-induced deaths than— then car accidents, number one cause of deaths for American adults right now. It's out of control. It just requires leadership. It requires some amount of centralization. The system is so expensive right now because everybody always asks, oh, is this gonna be expensive? You have to remember California spends more on mental health per capita than any other state in the country and we have the worst outcomes. So it's really just a consequence. It's really just a matter of enforcing the laws getting people into rehab, not allowing these destructive behaviors to continue to go on. I think that will have a huge impact right away. I mean, honestly, I think there's a fair number of people that once you just say, hey, party's over, we're not gonna tolerate the open air drug scene. I think there's some share of people, not a majority, not even half, but some share of people that are gonna actually say, you know, I'm ready to call it in and, and get get the help that they need on their own. I think other people, we will have to have a more stricter intervention, but ultimately we can get everybody inside. We have to, because we know that people that are outside and are homeless are three times more likely to die. The mortality rate is three times higher for unsheltered homeless people than for, than for sheltered
1: ones. Right, and the life expectancy for women unsheltered on the street is terrible. I mean, it's what, in the high 40s, low 50s, it's just terrible. It just seems to me that when you say the party's over and you do have something to offer them, I think you're right. A significant portion are gonna say, well, you know what? That's just what I needed. That was the nudge I needed. If all of a sudden I've either gotta go this route and do this the hard way or take the help I'm being offered, uh, hell, sign me up. I don't wanna do this anymore. And I don't want to go the hard line. I'd rather take the help and do what I need to do to get myself back.
0: You know, Dr. Phil, I was going to make one point, too, to that, which is that one of the points that harm reduction advocates make, which is accurate, is that most people who experiment with drugs, including hard ones, don't become addicts. And by the same token, um, a, a significant number of people that become addicts are able to quit on their own without needing to go to rehab. So... That's great, and, 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 but it has to be encouraged. And so I think that when the society says, this is not okay, there are going to be consequences, we're going to have a significant number of these folks able to resolve this on their own, and the others will be able to get the help that they need.
1: Look, I understand that a lot of these people, as you say, because of their dysfunctional family life, they're not like going to say, well, okay, I, I guess I'll go home and spend Christmas with the family. Not going to happen for a lot of these people. And for many of them, being on the street may be their best alternative if they come from abusive homes where there's incest and abuse and all. But the bar is really low in terms of giving them an alternative. And I just think the alternative doesn't have to be one that's enabling. The alternative can be one that says, I'm offering you some dignity here. I'm offering you a ladder. And this isn't about blaming the victim. It's about saying, look, I'm going to give you a path back. You do this, then you do that. Then we start training, and we start helping you get your resume together, and we start helping you get a job. And then all of a sudden, they start gaining some momentum. That's what I'm talking about.
0: Yeah, it's really I think it's about humanizing the victim. It's actually treating people in the throes of addiction or mental illness as people with the potential to be full human adults. And by not this this mantra of not holding people accountable, the the coddling and the enabling, it's an infantilization of adults who have the potential for recovery. And so yeah, it's it's um It's actually treating people as full humans rather than infantilizing them.
1: So that's what you want to see happen. It's what I want to see happen. What is most likely to happen over the next year to two years?
0: Well, it's really a very interesting moment right now. I've been um, unusually quiet on this issue compared to the last year and a half because I've been trying to give the politicians a minute to sort out all that's happened. We were able to generate a significant amount of national attention to the problems in California cities. We put the governor under some significant amounts of pressure, the San Francisco mayor's under pressure. They removed the district attorney from San Francisco. There is a new district attorney. She has said that she will prosecute drug dealers, including with homicide charges if their drugs result in overdose deaths. There's a mayor's race in L.A., and this is the top issue by far. So we are at an inflection point, and I, I think it could go either way. I mean, I, I think that, you know, these are really deep patterns of dysfunction. It's hard to get out of them. On the other hand, the public is with us on this issue. I mean, the public is very fed up. The voters don't understand why this problem isn't being solved. They're really getting tired of it. In the last Los Angeles mayor's debate, one of the journalists said that, you know, the polling that they had done the conversations with residents is that the residents are just sick of it and they just want people off the street and they're done with the excuses and they're done with making the perfect, the enemy of the good. So, you know, medium and long term, I'm optimistic. I'm not sure how soon it'll happen, but I do think we will end up doing the right thing even if we have to exhaust all other options before then.
1: <laughs> what do you think is going to happen in the LA mayor's race?
0: Boy, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I in I'm somewhat inspired. I'm a little, I, you know, there's one candidate, Rick Caruso who has said he wants to bring everybody inside. He's said that that's actually essential as a goal. I thought that his opponent Karen Bass was headed in a similar direction, but she ended up lapsing back into the traditional progressive talking points that everybody needs their own apartment unit, which is just bonkers. I mean, there's 66 or so thousand homeless people in Los Angeles County. You can't just go giving apartment units to every free apartment units to every single one of them. It just literally, it's there's not. There's no way to do that financially or geographically or on any time horizon that matters, and of course you do that and you create an incentive for more people to go live on the street so i i was i did I thought for a minute there that both candidates were headed in the right direction, but it feels like the the progressive one has lapsed back onto to the status quo policies that really got us to where we are now
1: So you think Karen Bass has gone back to the home first individual? Apartment living.
0: I heard her say that in the last debate that she said, Yeah, we'll have some shelter, but we have to deal with the root cause. And by the root cause, she meant rents are too high and poverty. And how that's disappointing because she's somebody who was active on these issues during the crack epidemic in the eighties. She knows full well that people don't end up on the street just because their rents are too high. She knows exactly that people end up on the street because of drug addiction but she's under pressure from a very, you know, powerful group of people, very powerful set of interests that want to maintain the system the way it's working and that's important to remember is that there's a lot of people that make a lot of money in the current homeless housing homeless services industry, you know, multi billions of dollars being spent every year on this industry and they don't want to see change. And so there is there is momentum and resources for the status quo.
1: So you think there are a lot of property owners with existing properties, as well as those that would build these multi unit properties that have a lot to lose if that gets abandoned?
0: You know, it's hard to say. There's a the the biggest provider of permanent supportive housing in San Francisco has been demanding an end to the open air drug markets. And when I pointed out to him that the customers for the drug dealers outside of his hotels that are the Permanent Supportive Housing for Homeless People, he sort of said, well, everybody drinks alcohol or does some kind of drug in San Francisco and kind of waved it away. But I, I do think that there is the possibility of winning over some of the service provider and some of the housing providers to a shelter first housing earned model, but you know people people are stuck in their ways, people resist change, particularly people that are profiting from the existing system.
1: has California lost its way and let me tell you it's a loaded question in that I watched what happened with the pandemic in that we had these mandated lockdowns. I was reviewing the timeline recently for something else and they were telling us, okay, two weeks. When they shut us down here at Paramount, they said, couple of weeks, everybody go inside, sit tight, and we'll get a handle on this. And look, I understand when you've got an unknown virus, you don't know exactly what the situation's going to be. But two weeks turned into two years. Schools got shut down without a plan to reopen them. We got the economy shut down. We got... The schools shut down. We got businesses, many of which did not survive and won't come back. I believe that you give somebody a new hammer, everything looks like a nail, and the government got that power to do that. I'm now reading where they're talking about everything's got to be electric vehicle-wise by 2035. Are we getting ready to have environmental lockdowns in california
0: well to
1: answer that question
0: i think it's worth pointing out that in a place that has that puts such a value on individual liberty and almost and really kind of libertine culture it comes at the cost of a lot of anxiety and a lot of neuroticism now both of those are characteristics of very wealthy societies as well they're characteristics of very secular societies People stop believing in traditional religion, which is a source of comfort around what happens after death and around the order of the universe. And I see a lot of anxiety in California, bordering on paranoia, which is, I think, what was behind keeping the schools shut down. I also think that was motivated by the the excess power of the teachers union. And I say this as the son of a teacher and a son of a teachers union rep. But the teachers union abused the coronavirus pandemic to basically stay home and and not do their jobs and use the excuse of being sick even though we saw all around the world by the way including in Australia which had a very strict lockdown to have the kids go back to school and we've seen incredible damage from keeping kids out of school yeah i mean it's it's ideology makes people stupid at a certain level and so we've gotten ourselves confused about climate change. It's certainly real. It's certainly something we should do something about. But we're on the cusp of having blackouts for three years in a row. And five days after they announced a ban on internal combustion engine vehicles in late August, five days later, they asked people not to charge their electric vehicles from 4 to 9 p.m. for fear of blackouts. We're getting increasingly repressive legislation saying that we are they're gonna ban natural gas furnaces and heaters. It's dangerous to be reliant on a single energy source, so that if there's a blackout now, you can still cook on your gas stove. Becoming overly reliant on electricity is a bad idea. The neuroticism extended to nuclear power. Now the governor made the right decision recently and decided to keep our last nuclear plant open. But I think it's some combination of excess anxiety and neuroticism combined with some arrogance, a lot of ideology. And that's kind of turned into, a, I think, a perfect storm that ends up being quite destructive of institutions that are necessary for the functioning of civilization. And by the way, I think maybe the most acute problem is the demoralization and the demonization of police officers. You know, police, now they're offering them more money, but, you know, the police understandably felt disrespected when they were being accused of being racist and fascist in 2020 when everybody kind of lost their their minds temporarily. So I think that my concern is that civilization is precious. It's what keeps us safe. It's what allows us our freedom. It depends on functioning institutions, like functioning electrical grids, law and order, and a meritocracy. And I'd see all three of those pillars of civilization being undermined in California right now.
1: I do as well. I'm particularly concerned about each of the things you just talked about, including the meritocracy. I don't understand what's happening at universities around the country right now. Particularly in California, we have the tail wagging the dog. We have the students complaining about bringing in people that have different ideas than they do. We have students complaining about classes being too hard. We have professors being dismissed because they won't compromise the requirements in something like organic chemistry, a prerequisite to medical school. What kind of doctors are we going to turn out if? We have students saying, I don't think I should have to learn all of that. And then they go on to medical school. We have professors under heat because they're saying we're not getting the best and the brightest. How does this work? What does it mean for our future if we don't have somebody that steps up and says, this isn't working? We can't do it this way. We've got to continue to hold ourselves to a higher standard.
0: Oh, it's – it's catastrophic for the civilization. You know, when you, I mentioned, you know, it's abundant, cheap energy, law and order, meritocracy are the three pillars of civilization. You know, if you, when they just announced a policy to defund the police and you had anti-police protests, there was an immediate spike in crime. When you don't have sufficient sources of reliable electricity, you have blackouts. Problem with the meritocracy is that it can be years until the The effects of undermining meritocracy are felt. So I worry very much about this. We are, we got basically it's the same victim ideology. It's the idea that if there's racial or other forms or gender inequalities in terms of the number of professors or PhDs or people in a profession, that that somehow must be blamed. On people being discriminatory or mean or oppressive, as opposed to the many other factors that it could be to due to, and that that some that there's going to be differences you wouldn't predict actually just statistically that you would see a uniform diversity racially or otherwise in any profession. you would expect there to be differences there, but we've gotten into a moral panic. You know, we the civil rights movement was such a special moment in American history and it's something for all of us to be proud of. But we went way too far in basically turning it into a kind of god and and kind of sacralizing an important movement into sort of a hard black and white moral judgment to apply to every domain of life. It's very dangerous meritocracy we have meritocracies for a reason we want to sort out the people that are good at medicine that are good at engineering that are good at sports that are good at cooking that are good at writing books at being psychotherapists meritocracy is what allows us to find the the right professions for each of us and so it's not a mode of social control it's actually a form of human liberation I think we've forgotten why we have meritocracy and why it benefits us as individuals as well as a society, and we need, to, we need to get back and remind ourselves of the importance of it.
1: Well, that's why I'm concerned about where we're going now, because when they shut the schools down, they created educational gaps, developmental gaps, social gaps, that I don't think we're going to feel the brunt of for decades. I think the competitiveness of America in the world market is greatly compromised. I think it's going to cost millions of years of lives lost for this current generation of students. You know, if you're not reading on grade level at the end of the 3rd grade, particularly for low socioeconomic strata and for minorities the dropout rate is six times normal because they just never catch up they then fall further behind in fourth grade and in fifth grade it really steps up where they start teaching grammar and you have to start kind of self-directing more and The Department of Education in 2015 said that there were 32 million people that can't read above the fifth grade level and that 19% of high school graduates can't read above the most basic level. The National Assessment of Education progress said 32% of fourth graders and 24% of eighth graders aren't reading at a basic level. So whoever you're talking to said, we weren't doing great going into this. And now we've created these levels, and that remote learning, particularly for those lower grades, didn't work. It just didn't work. So they lost a year and come back and feel intimidated now. So they fall further and further behind. That means they're going to get less of a quality education, which means they're going to get less of a job, which means they have poorer insurance in higher-risk jobs, which create more injuries, slower diagnosis, poorer treatment, which creates those years of life lost, all of this just obtains 20 years from now, 30 years from now, and we're just not competitive. Something has to happen to close that gap. You can't just, because you don't see it right now, pretend it doesn't exist. And that's why we're seeing such high levels of depression, anxiety, stress, and loneliness higher than have ever been registered before with these kids. And nothing is going to change it except getting in there and doing special reading programs and addressing the mental health of these kids. I read right when Apocalypse Never came out, Critics were describing you as being a denier on climate change. They apparently didn't read the book. Nothing could be further from the truth. I read you as saying, absolutely, we need to pay attention to the climate. Absolutely, I am sensitive to that. I just don't believe what they're selling is going to help. That's the way I read what you were saying. I absolutely think we should attend to the climate. And to the planet, just not with what you're peddling, because that's not working. It won't work. I don't get it. Yeah, that's
0: right. It's it's the I it's a similar the books are I didn't really see it until I was finished with San Francisco, but I do see my two books are both arguing for human potential, for human resilience, for the old Rosie the Riveter, you know, yes we can spirit. That was When I was when I self-identified as a progressive, that was the spirit of it that I took from it. It was uh, about overcoming adversity. It was not wallowing in misery. Whereas if you look at it today, it's a kind of catastrophism, psychologically and otherwise. The idea that climate change is not something that we're going to be able to survive. That's absolutely absurd. You know, the number of deaths from natural disasters has declined over 95 percent, fact, the number of what gets counted as a disaster because so few people die has has meant that we've actually had fewer natural disasters over the last two decades. Similarly, I see a kind of similar learned helplessness or a taught helplessness in the case of homelessness. So on the one hand, on climate change, we say, oh, the Bangladeshis will never be able to survive rising sea levels, even though the people of the Netherlands in many parts of it live seven meters below sea level. And similarly, we say, oh, those those people on the street will never be able to give up drugs. When, of course, millions of people achieve recovery from addiction every year. And so there's Mm -hmm. an actual the denial that's occurring is the denial of human power and of human potential. And that's a real change from the best of the 1960s of the best of victor frankl of his argument in man's search for meaning which is that mentality is everything and a long way from you know the self-help self, the human potential movements you know, which i think used to have a huge influence on liberal-minded people but now I think among liberal minded people, it's viewed as blaming the victim to suggest that people can develop the mentality capable of transcending their circumstances.
1: Well, I couldn't agree more. And it's not blaming the victim to empower the victim and to help them require more of themselves every step of the way. And to disagree with a particular plan doesn't mean to disagree with the primary objective, to ignore the advances in agricultural science that will take place between now and 2050 or now and 2100, and its counterbalancing effects. I don't know. It just doesn't seem helpful to yell fire in a crowded theater. In both cases, too,
0: I think it's a a bid for control. I think that that anxiety that I was describing among liberal-minded people and affluent societies. The way they seek to gain a sense, the way they seek to resolve their anxiety is by seeking to gain greater control over parts of the economy and the society that they should not be trying to control, whether it's around energy or food production or psychiatry or addiction care. It's this kind of, um, ideologically driven demand for social control that I think has, has really posed a threat to these three pillars of civilization that I've been describing.
1: Well, I think there are good ideas on both sides of the aisle from progressives and conservatives. The objectives are important enough that we should all work together to find the best ideas from the best minds and work on all this together. I hope you never stop talking about all of these issues and. I've kept you way longer than I was supposed to. I hope you'll let me have some more of your time sometime before too long to talk about climate and talk about what needs to be done and separate truth from fiction and the doable from fantasy and talk about that. It's dangerous rhetoric to talk about the progressives' religion, but... I think it's important to get real about this so we can do what can really be done. I really hope we can have some time to talk about that realistically at some point in the future. I hope you'll give me some time to talk about that.
0: I would love to. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. I would love to come back.
1: Well, thanks for talking about this today. I hope to see you before too very long. If there's anything I can do to help you in pushing the things forward that need to be pushed forward, I hope you'll let me know because I would certainly make my voice and platforms available if I can help in any way.
0: Appreciate you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Dr. Phil.
1: Okay. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Go so along.